He's been married 26 years. He has three children, a son 18 and 20, a daughter 10. He, um, he actually did graduate from uh, Harvard, and he is actually a Rhodes Scholar, uh, unlike some of our other guests. And uh, he originally was from Chicago. He has an interesting uh, thing that his spiritual father he considers to be Walt Hendrickson. And uh, I asked Walt about that, and Walt had a wonderful thing to say, that he was uh, one of the most godly men he's ever known. And for us that know and respect Walt, that's quite a thing to say. And uh, he likes coming up to the ranch here because he's read uh, 103 of uh, Louis L'Amour's books twice. So he, uh, he sold out on that concept. Now, he only has one thing that I really don't seem to be consistent with all that, and he's a civil lawyer. And so... Uh, <laughs> Without further ado, I'd like to ask uh, Bill McKeon to come up, and he'll really bless you guys. Welcome him. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Uh, I am going to talk to you about a subject that God has been dealing with me about, and it's discipline and sons. I don't mean to limit it to sons, because everything I say applies equally to whether you have sons or daughters. And. Um, I want to make uh, one correction in what my brother said. I've got two spiritual fathers. One is Walt and one is Gail. Um, and I love the fact that uh, I am here today um, because more and more I just want all of us to see that we are really the body of Christ regardless of what we look like and that one day we will all be before the throne of grace and I cannot wait to see Puerto Ricans and Native Americans and all manner of Asians. I want to see tall, short, thin, fat, every hue before the throne of God. Uh, I remember at a retreat in our Lost Valley that we call Pine Valley, Gail was giving a talk I'm not going to fall victim to the theory of quotation today, Gail. <laughs> I started to say, as I have always said. <laughs> but uh, Gail made a, a statement at the time which I thought was hilarious. Uh, and I didn't appreciate the wisdom of it until later. Gail said, men who have small children write books about how to raise children. And men who have teenagers simply pray. <laughs> and I just left, I thought that I quoted that and quoted that, and little did I know the wisdom uh, of those words. When uh, when my boys 
were small, I could say jump. And they would say, Daddy, how high? Which way? And when they got around 14 and, and I said jump, they looked me in the eye and they said, make me. <laughs> Completely different relationship. And so let me tell you what I am not going to talk about today. I am not going to talk about a whole lot of aspects about the relationships between fathers and sons, because we could go on, we could devote an entire weekend to that. I am going to focus on the issue of discipline. You with me? I'm going to focus on the issue of discipline. And I'd like you to open, and we'll be primarily, though not exclusively, in 2 Samuel. So start off with me and open to 2 Samuel chapter 13. <clears throat> and starting with Michael Myers. I'd like us each to read two verses, all right? We'll just go up that table, down this table, up this table, until we finish. 2 Samuel 13. Please, and when you read, please read loudly. After this, Absalom of the son of David had a long, lovely sister whose name was Tamar and Ammon and the son of David loved her. But Ammon had a friend whose name was Jonadad and the son of... You know, now wait a minute. Yeah. You did, somebody didn't read verse 2, did they? Okay, don't, don't pass it on. Just start at verse 2 and read two verses. Did I one was so frustrated because of his yeah. sister Tamar that he made himself ill. For she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Ammon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Ammonon pretended that he was sick and went to bed. King David went to see him, and Ammonon said to him, Please let Tam, Tamar come and, and make a few cakes here where I can see her and then serve them to me herself. So David sent word to Tamar in the palace, go to Amnon's house and fix him some good food. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down and she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. 
And she took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Anon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Uh, do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where can I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Ammon hated her with, great, with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Ammon said to her, Arise, be gone. No, she said to him, Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. Now she had on a long-sleeved garment, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment which was on her. And she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister, he is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. And Absalom spoke to his brother Abnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Abnon, because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass, after two full years, that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal-Hazor, which is near Eparam. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, your servant has sheep, sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom instructed his servants, Watch Amnon. When he is drunk, I will tell you, Kill Amnon, right then kill him. Don't be afraid, because I have commanded you. Be strong and brave. So Absalom's young men killed Amnon, as Absalom commanded. But all of David's other sons got on their mules and escaped. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. 
The king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. And Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, responded, Do not let my lord suppose they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore do not let my lord the king take the report to heart, namely all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Now Absalom had fled, and the young man who was with the watchman raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side and by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's son have come according to your servant's word. So it happened. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Telemai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshar. And David mourned for his son day after day. After Absalom fled and went to Gesur, he stayed there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. I want you to turn to chapter 16. <coughs> Same format, two verses. Now when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddle donkeys. And on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 15. Forgive me. I was wondering where you were reading. <laughs> Started 15, verse 1. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses, and 50 men as runners before him. And Absalom used, used to rise early and stand beside the stand beside the way to the gate and it happened that when any man had a suit to come wait a minute, to the wait a minute. I can't believe I'm doing this let me read yes. okay because I meant chapter 14 <laughs> uh, let me let, let me hurry up I wish you guys would listen to me Chapter 14, verse 1. Joab, son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor. And she said, Help me, O king. And the king asked her, What is troubling you? And she said, I am indeed a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They said, Hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death. For the life of his brother whom he killed, then we will get rid of the heir as well. 
they would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go home, and I will issue an order in your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, My lord the king, let the blame rest on me and on my father's family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he will not bother you again. And she said, Then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. And now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will do what his servant asks. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from the inheritance God gave us. And now your servant says, may the word of the Lord the king bring the rest, bring me rest. For my Lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Then the king said to the woman, do not keep from me the answer to what I am going to ask you. Let my, word, let my lord the king speak, the woman said. And the king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? Now I'm going to hop over to um, uh, verse 28. David let Absalom return to the area. And it says, Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Banishment, then under a ruse, he was brought back to Jerusalem, and David refused to see him for two years. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab went to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said to him, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of these tribes and one of that tribe. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. 
And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. And I'm jumping down at verse 6. Absalom behaved this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. Eventually, Absalom takes over Jerusalem. And at the advice of Ahithophel, who was one of David's chief advisors, Absalom announces his reign over Jerusalem by openly sleeping with David's wives. David has fled Jerusalem rather than fight Absalom. Now, I want to run something by you as we go over this story in a little greater detail. And one is that the standard for discipline, I'm talking about in the family, the standard for discipline is God's word. Two, the basis for discipline is relationship. And three, the goal of discipline is repentance, reformation, and relationship. You with me so far? Let's look at this uh, story of Amnon and Tamar. Amnon, drunk with lust for his sister, schemes to rape Tamar. Now, the story strongly suggests to us that Amnon's intentions were obvious to everyone except David. Now, either David did not see or David chose not to see. Whichever, the result was still the same. The servants and Joab and all were able to look at the way Amnon looked at Tamar. And it didn't take a rocket scientist after time to figure out what Amnon wanted. Why did Amnon think he could get away with this incredible sin within his own household? Think of that. They live in the same household and eat at the same table day in and day out. What was it in his relationship with his father that led Amnon to think that he could do this act with impunity? Amnon's, perhaps he was thinking of David's Achilles heel. That is, the sin in David's own past life would disable David, and he would not act. We can only speculate that there were prior instances 
of Amnon's relationship with Tamar that went from the very discreet to the noticeable and then to the open and violent flagrant act that was rape. David may well have had many opportunities to act. And each time he failed to act, Amnon got bolder and bolder and bolder. As fathers, we must love, lead, train, and discipline our children. Love, lead, train, and discipline. And again, I am going to focus on the discipline part. In society, it's really clear to me that the failure to enforce the law only breeds contempt for the law, a sense that one can act without consequence. And though it may sometimes be true humanly, we know, or we should know, that it is never true in the divine economy. God says, be not deceived. We talked about this yesterday. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. When we read the story and Tamar came out in the sign of grief with torn clothes and wailing, the story tells us that instantly Absalom knew what had happened. He knew what had happened because this had been a growing issue either undetected by David but more probably simply not dealt with. David's initial reaction, if you go back to chapter 13, verse 21, when King David heard all this, he was furious. Fine. But he didn't do anything. He was furious, but he failed to act. Now, under the law, if, and I won't go back to it, but I'll give you a cite. In Leviticus 18, verses 11 and 29, in Leviticus 20, chapter 17, it was against the law to have sex with your sister or your stepsister. And when Tamar had said to Amnon, don't do this, just talk to David, he will let you have me, uh, I suspect that she didn't mean that at all. She was buying time. She knew because she told him that this was against the law. She was just trying to get out of a very difficult situation. It didn't matter to Amnon. Now David is in 
a difficult position, admittedly. He has a twofold responsibility. One, he is the king, and he is required to execute judgment. And secondly, he is the father. David's anger proves that he was aware of the law and the nature and magnitude of Amnon's sin. But look at verse 23 with me. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers, on and on and on and on. For two years, Absalom is watching his dad. What are you going to do about this situation? Are you going to discipline or punish Amnon? Now, under the law, at the very least, David, the law says, anybody who engages in such an act must be cut off from their people. For two years, Absalom had to watch Amnon go unpunished. And in our household, our children watch us. And they are seeing how we discipline them. And if you have only one child, that child is watching to see whether you, we, as fathers, are going to discipline them. They are watching. And even though there is this surface quiet as they observe our inaction, there is a great deal of turmoil going on as a result of our inaction. The punishment we mete out to our children sets the moral environment in which they know consciously they have to operate. We have to love, lead, train, and discipline our children. The story so far is remarkable for the following things. There is nothing to indicate that David ever talked talked to Amnon or Absalom about this event. Think of it. Your son has just raped his stepsister in your house and you go to dinner day after day carrying on as though nothing has happened. There is no rebuke to Amnon. There is no call to repentance. There is no comfort to Tamar. And there is no comfort to Absalom. There is also nothing to indicate that David prayed for guidance. God, what do I do? Nothing to indicate that he ever sought counsel from godly men about how to handle this situation. So, here's one problem. Satan seeks to isolate us by sticking us in moral quicksand so that we do not seek God and we do not seek the counsel of godly men. Now, 
David knew what the law was. It wasn't an issue of what should I do. It was an issue of can I bring myself to do what needs to be done. Is there someone here today who is in a similar situation? Your son or your daughter, and you know it, is in a state of sin. And for whatever reason, you are ignoring it. Is there someone here today like David sitting on a moral time bomb trying to convince himself that the sound he is hearing is not the ticking of that clock winding down to the point of explosion? Why didn't David act? The scripture doesn't tell us why he did not act, but the most probable reason I submit to you that he did not act is because of his own sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, not only did David fail to act with Amnon, but he also eventually failed to act with Absalom. And you know the story about David and Bathsheba. And so David may be saying to himself, <laughs> who am I to judge? Remember, the, the sin that Amnon has done is exactly the sin that David did. By lust, he has fornicated. And he has fornicated against someone to whom he owed loyalty. Remember, Uriah was one of David's 33 mighty men, men who by their character and valor had set themselves apart and were distinguished in the nation of Israel as entirely unique, 33 of them, and Uriah's one of them. David had a special, this was not just an ordinary soldier. And yes, it was in the time that David lived, kings could call anybody's wives into them if they wanted to. But remember when God called the Egyptians, I'm sorry, the Hebrews out of Egypt, he expressly told them, he gave them a list of things to do in Leviticus. He said, you absolutely must not conduct yourselves the way the Egyptians conduct themselves in the way the Canaanites did. And he made a list of things. Just, here are just examples. You must not do that. So although David had the right for his region to have taken Bathsheba with no big deal and nobody would have thought of it, because he was God's man, he absolutely had no right to do that. And here Uriah had devoted himself to David. And David not only had a relationship with God through the law, but he had a special relationship with this man who had dedicated himself to David's service. And here is Amnon repeating David's sin. Now, who am I to judge? 
And punishing Amnon perhaps would open up still old painful wounds. But I submit to you that our moral failures do not lessen our responsibility to lead, discipline, and, and train our children. And I am assuming that our children know our moral failures. We are not excused from this God-given responsibility because we have screwed up in the past. Somebody here may have a history of alcoholism and your son or your daughter is in route to repeat what you have done. And you say, who am I to judge? Who am I to say? You have an obligation before God to go to that son and daughter and say, absolutely, you must not do this. And yes, you expose yourself to the charge. Who are you to tell me? Who are you to tell me? You tell them not because you are invested with a particular moral authority. You do it because God commands you to do it. You understand what I'm saying? You may feel bereft of the moral authority to discipline your children. That does not matter. We have an obligation before God to discipline them, even in the areas where we have failed most conspicuously. Now, David may have had in his mind the curse that Nathan gave him after Nathan confronted him with his adultery and his murder. And Nathan said, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Now, just technically, I submit to you that what Amnon did doesn't neatly fit into this curse at all. David might have thought it did, but it, it didn't. And nonetheless, God's judgment did not relieve David of his duties as a father and a king to judge and discipline Amnon. You with me? The fact that God said, I am sovereignly bringing discord and troubles in your family did not relieve David one iota from his responsibility to lead, discipline, and train his children. That is, God's sovereignty did not excuse or lessen David's personal responsibility. Absalom took the law into his own hands. He watched his dad for two years. David didn't do anything. He plotted and he murdered his brother. Again, the irony is that it reflects the sin of David's own life. One son commits fornication like David did with Bathsheba. The other son commits murder like David did with Uriah. And now this act of Absalom fits in 
perfectly with the curse that Nathan is talking about. But it still doesn't stop David's responsibility. The irony is that David is an unwitting but necessary foil in Absalom's plot to kill Amnon. Is David so naive? Does he have such a head-in-the-sand posture that, Am that Absalom can come to him and say, I want my buddy Amnon to come out in the woods with me so we could have a picnic. <laughs> I mean, we look at this, we look at this, and we say, how could he be so blind? How could he be so stupid? Wasn't he the least bit suspicious that Absalom had never blown up, had never demanded that his father follow the law, had never demanded that his father do something. Had never just gone to him and said, Dad, how is this happening? Talk to me. You're the head of this household. Why, how, what is your rationale for dealing with our family this way? Give me some guidance. Tell me because, God, it's a fundamental disconnect for me. My sense of right and wrong is just jarred turned upside down by the way you fail to deal with this situation. Talk to me. Help me understand. Maybe you see something that I don't see, and I need you to explain to me, because if you don't, I just, I just don't know what my world is going to do now. I don't know how things are going to fit together anymore. No, I think for some reason, because of this past sin, I submit to you, Absalom's very silence should have been a clanging bell to David of an impending conflict. And I think he just wanted to look the other way. It was quiet. I'm not going to deal with this. I am, I fornicated all the time. I am not going to talk to my son that I saw a condom in his wallet. Man, I am not going to say to my son, I thought I smelled marijuana in your room last night. And when you came home and gave me the car keys, I, I, I could have sworn I smelled alcohol on your breath. Look with me for a quick moment at 2 Samuel 13, verse 39. After Absalom kills David, um, Amnon, it says... And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. That same word, consoled, is used other places to indicate comforted or relieved. It's as though David breathed a sigh of relief that someone dealt with the situation other than himself. It was a sigh of relief. His comfort was falsely thinking, I don't have to deal with this now. It's over. It's behind me. 
and I can go on. This is the second time David has failed to act with proper moral discipline for his son. Like as with Amnon, Absalom is completely unrepentant. He has the nerve to tell a job, if I have done anything wrong, put me to death. But deal with me. As with Amnon, David failed to rebuke Absalom in, at all. And with Amnon, as David failed to require any reformation from Absalom. There's a quote from F.B. Meyer in his book on David that I love, and it says, they say a man never hears his own voice until it comes back to him from the phonograph. And certainly a man never sees the worst of himself until it reappears in his son. So in Amnon, David saw his own unrestrained lust with Bathsheba, and in Absalom, he saw his own blood guiltiness for the murder of the faithful Uriah. And David did exactly what many of us do. We fail to confront our children face to face with their sins. We're in a state of denial. We're in a state of loss of moral authority. We're willing to maintain surface calm while the moral turmoil rages beneath the surface. We just want to get by until that kid gets out the house. Let others deal with him or her. Just let me maintain it. I don't want things to explode in my house. Absalom returns to Jerusalem after three years of living in refuge. And during that entire time, David has no contact with him. David doesn't talk to him. And then Absalom gets so, Joab gets this ruse, and he sees that David is mourning about Absalom. He gets Absalom back in, into Jerusalem, and then David refuses to talk to him. And so in order to get somebody's attention, Absalom burns down Joab's field. And says, okay, now, you know, get this message to David. I, I, wanted, I want him to talk to me. So David kisses him, and then there's no indication of any further relationship after that point. Clearly, David loved him. But had David resigned himself to God's judgment that the, to the point that he would not seek to build true reconciliation and reformation in his son? And David, by his own past sin, had really become a moral cripple in this area of disciplining his son. And in doing so, he lost one big lesson. Our moral failures are often the means God uses to help us accomplish the responsibility we have to love, lead, train, and discipline our children. I know if, if you are like me, there are times that you want to appear in front of your sons and your daughters like you have got it or I have got it all together. I've got this thing wired and locked up. 
Dad is never afraid. Dad has no ambiguities in his life. Dad doesn't have any real moral failures in his life. Uh, I've waded in water, but I've never had to swim. I've never been over my head, and I've always been in control. It is very difficult to teach our children from the standpoint of unblemished success. It is, let me get through this and then question. That way I'm stalling so I won't have to answer questions. But you know that your greatest learning has come, what, from your successes? or from your failures. And it is with our children that we have an opportunity to love, train, lead, and discipline by letting them know what our failures are. I remember when I confronted my son because I said, I believe that you are using marijuana. And he said to me, well, you used it when you were my age. And I just stopped in my tracks. First of all, I want to know how in the bleep did he find that out? <laughs> and I was truly stymied. He was right. He was saying to me, who are you to judge? You don't have any moral authority to tell me what to do. And I tell you, I didn't have an answer. I went back and I recounted that conversation with Dana, my wife, and we concluded, yeah, you may have to go back to him with your tail between your legs because you failed in that area of your life. But nonetheless, you got to go back there and tell him that is unacceptable behavior. Oh, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. And it took me a couple of days to go back to him. And I went back to him and I said, son, you know, you are absolutely right. I sinned before God when I spoke marijuana. And I'm telling you that the rule in this house is that you cannot do that. Now, it doesn't matter whether you don't think I have the moral authority to say this. This is my house. I am accountable to God for how I deal with you. Now, God knows I've smoked marijuana, and he knows I'm a rotten sinner, and nonetheless, he has imposed this duty on me. Now, you and I have to deal with this. You understand that I am going to lay down rules as best I can the way God tells me to do it. And I want you to know I love you, but if you get angry, that is okay. It is unacceptable behavior. I want to tell you, and I would like to tell you, that he said, oh, okay. No more. <laughs> and in fact, that's exactly the way it happened. No, I mean, we wrestled and wrestled and wrestled over this issue and other issues. And the core of it was, who are you to tell me? And my constant answer with back was, God has made this sinner your father. Point one. Your father, God did not appoint as your father a man who did not smoke marijuana or sin. Now, you tell God that he gave you the wrong father, but in the meantime, 
This is the father you're dealing with. You understand? This is the father you're dealing with. And I am going to come back to you on this issue over and over and again because God is holding me accountable for training you. Now, I'm not accountable to God for how you turn out because I don't have sovereign control over your circumstances. But I am obligated by God to let you know that in this household, when you do it, I will punish you. Now, you deal with God your own way, but in this house, you cannot do that. Well, Absalom goes to the gate, and he lies and tells these people, you know, if I were king, man, I would handle all these claims justly, and everything would be great, undermining his father's authority because he is so bitter against his dad. And we'll get to that point in a moment. But what is telling to me about this story is that when David was in his prime, one of the things that the Bible tells us is that he was walking in and out among the people. They could say, there's David. And when he did that, he grew dearer in the hearts of men. But now, at this stage in his life, David is no longer at the gate. And it says Absalom is there day in and day out for years. And David is not at the gate. David has withdrawn because of this sin in his life. And someone not have usurped his place. He has filled the vacancy that David has created by emotionally withdrawing from what God has called him to do. And so we as fathers emotionally withdraw when we screw up and we work a couple of more hours. Or we work on the weekend. Or we take up some time-consuming hobby away from the family. Or when we come home, we go into the front door, straight back to the den, close the door, and we don't communicate. We emotionally withdraw. We do not sit at the gate, and the son does in our place. Now. I'm sorry? Okay, bear with me. Okay. In God's economy, the failure to discipline our children is associated with hatred. It is not associated with love. Let me repeat that. In God's economy, the failure to discipline our children is associated with hate. I would like somebody to turn to Hebrews 12. Raise your hand so I know who's doing, who's doing that for me. Hebrews 12, anybody. Okay, you've got Hebrews 12. Somebody turn to Proverbs 3. You've got Proverbs 3. And somebody turn to Proverbs 13. Okay, Rick, you got Proverbs. Okay, turn now in the, with the person who's reading uh, Hebrews 11. I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 9. Would you read that? You sure that's the right one? <laughs> I'll only know when you start reading it. <laughs> 
Hebrews 12, 4 through 9. Yes. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Okay, now stop. God chastens us or disciplines us. Why? Because he loves us and because he is interested in our eternal welfare. That is the overriding issue, our eternal welfare. And when God ceases to deal with a person, that is the moment of danger. Fear not the guy who is going through business failures and turmoil or health problems. But fear the believer who is making more money than he can ever spend has excellent health and not a problem in the world. Why has God turned his back on that person? Okay, who's reading Proverbs 3? Please. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. The son he what? Delights in. All right, who's got Proverbs? Rick, you got Proverbs 13? He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. One more time, please. He who spares the rod hates his son. What, does what? I didn't hear that right. He hates his hates. son. Okay, keep going. But he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Okay. We have this obligation if we love our children. We must discipline them for their eternal well-being. Perhaps you remember this classic courtroom drama with Shelley Winters. She has a daughter who has had everything in life that she could want. And she and this other guy commit this gruesome murder. Burt Lancaster plays the prosecutor in the case. And the daughter is, she's just lovely. She's had every convenience in life. And she is mean-hearted, cruel, and bitter. And Shelley is talking to, she plays the mother, talking to Bert Lance, and he said, you know, your daughter is full of anger and full of bitterness. Her heart is hard. She said, I can't understand it. We have always loved her. And, and he says, she knows that you hate her. She said, how? We've done everything for her. And Bert Lancaster said, but you never punished her.
So we may think we are showing love or kindness to our children by kind of looking the other way. But from God's perspective, we are hating our children. Hating in the sense that we are letting them act without any concern for their eternal well-being. We are more concerned about their temporal ease than we are about their eternal status. That's hatred. Love is to be much more concerned about the person's eternal status than about their temporal discomfort. So if your discipline means that that child, this is the rule, and you don't go to the prom if you break it, not because you're trying to be hard, but because you're thinking of the eternal consequence, oh, think how terrible that would be not to go to the prom, but they engage in the behavior that violates the rule. And you say to yourself, how can I deprive my lovely child of this opportunity to go to the prom? But what you do, or what we do when we let them go, is we say, I want you to learn that there is no consequence to your behavior. And if there is no consequence to your behavior with me, then implicitly there is no consequence to your behavior in terms of your relationship with God. Now I have just undermined your entire life. I love you. God holds us accountable for failing to exercise godly discipline. And the failure to discipline holds temporal and eternal consequences. Clearly, we see that with Amnon and Absalom. I mean, but the temporal aside, there is nothing in this scripture to indicate to us that Amnon or Absalom ever had a relationship with God. That there was ever the slightest repentance. That there was a, even a flicker of a desire for reformation. That there was any turning to God in a recognition that what they had done was wrong. Somebody, would you raise your hand? Frank, I'm going to call you Frank Bedford. Is that it? Bernheim. Well, pronounce it correctly, will you? Uh, <laughs> Frank, will you do Proverbs 19:18? You, would you do Proverbs 23, 13, and 14? Proverbs 19, 18. And Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Frank, if you have it, would you start? Sure. Why do I have this marked in my Bible? <laughs> Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. Say that again. Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. Okay. Young man? Not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. God holds us accountable for failing to exercise godly discipline, and the failure to discipline holds temporal and eternal consequences for both the father 
and the child. And we are called upon now, and then I close with this, to exert godly discipline. Godly discipline. Um, somebody turn to Ephesians 6, 4. Who will do that for me? Ephesians 6, 4. Well, you got it. Colossians 3.21. Who will do that? Young man, will you do that? Okay. Please. Ephesians 6.4. And fathers, do not provo provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay. Colossians. Fathers, do not exacer exacerbate your children that they may not lose heart. Okay. We have to give discipline that is rooted in Scripture. Let me find... Oh, here we go. Let me go back to this and I close with this. The standard for discipline is God's word. You want to be very careful that that's how we discipline. Don't just come up with a bunch of arbitrary rules. The Bible has to be the basis for which we impose discipline. Let there be freedom where the Bible says there is freedom. Secondly, the basis for, relation, for discipline is relationship. I realize, and I, Walt said this to me once, my children obey me because they agree to, or words to that effect. My 18-year-old is three inches taller than I am, and his voice is at least, at least a full octave lower than mine. And I have to look up and say, I want you home at 1230. <laughs> And he looked at me and said, but dad. <laughs> and my 18-year-old, my, uh, my, my son who will be 21 in September, is my height. It is not by physical force, by out-shouting them, as that lovely devotion that Don Led talked about earlier. It is by relationship. And it's not by my moral authority. I have sought, thanks to Walt, thanks to Gail, to invest myself in my sons so that when our relationship is strained, they remember that I love them and in my worst moments, I still love them. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to go to my sons and say, son, I was wrong. And I need you to forgive me for the way I treated you or for what I said. I don't like doing that. And it hurts my pride to have to do that. My father never came anywhere near that in dealing with me. 
but it, but it was for the, the sake of relationship so that when I disciplined them, they would not respond with bitterness, but their hearts would remain open toward the Lord even as they rebel against me. So that my son, when he's 16, 17, and 18, will listen because we have a relationship that is built up over time. And yes, it will be strained. And Walt gave me an idea, God bless his heart. My son is at college and I try every week to write him a note. It may only be a sentence, but just the discipline of sitting down and I may just say, I'm just sitting at the desk, it's a sunny day, you won my mind, love your dad. Sometimes it's a lot longer. And I have never in my notes, though I wanted to, though I wanted to, trust me, to criticize him. And the one time I felt impelled, despite the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to criticize him, I wrote this long note and I had to get it out. And by the grace of God, the letter never got to him. The only letter I ever wrote to him that he never received. And once it was gone, I said, oh God, what have I done? What have I done? And I would call, son, did you, did you get my note? He said, no, not yet. We, son, did you get my note? No. Then I realized by, by God's grace, he had just thrown that letter away. But right now, you may be saying here, it is too late. But because God is God, he is able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, and it is never too late to build a relationship with your son or your daughter, and the basis of that changed relationship is your repentance. So I urge you, if there is some bitterness that your child has for you because maybe you've been exerting some standard for discipline that's not God. That the goal of your discipline has not been repentance, reformation, and relationship. It's been punishment. God's goal is repentance, reformation, and relationship. I urge you today, you go back to your son, you go back to your daughter, and you ask them to forgive you for anything that you have done outside the Word of God that has hurt their soul. I came home one day from work not too long ago, and my 10-year-old daughter, who has just the sweetest, godliest spirit, I came in, it had been a rough day at the office, and uh, she said, hi, Daddy. I mean, she just loves to see me. She's 10 years old. And she makes me feel like I'm the most important guy in the world. And I came in, and she said, Daddy, Daddy. And I said, is your room clean? Did you do your homework? And I walked to the back as I'm talking. And I could just see her go, just, just break, just break. And she said, you can't even say hello? And I was so convicted. I went back to her and I said, Skylar, I am so sorry. Would you forgive me 
that I was so preoccupied with myself that I, I'm sorry. And bless her heart, she was quick to forgive. And I wish I could tell you that's the only time I've done that. <laughs> or that that was the last time I've done that. But it's not. But the basis for your disciplining your children, see, you want to build up a relationship with them. We want to. So that when we go to them and they say, who are you to tell me that? Something else will say, you know, but he loves you. He really is looking out for your best interest. I got a note from my 18-year-old, and I tell you, we have been really wrestling. And uh, I've stopped lecturing to him. And I've just gotten on my knees before God. And this is a, I remember, this is a true story. I brought my sons to the office and I spent the day with one of my partners and he said, man, I'm amazed. Your kids do everything you say. And I was just, no, how do you do that? And man, I had an, you know, you do hell, you do that, yeah. <laughs> I got this five-step program. I'll send you my book in the mail. And I tell you, I spend much more time, much more time in prayer before God, talking to God about my son. I said, God, please talk to him. Please keep his heart open. Please don't let me interfere with your work in his life. Don't let me make him bitter. While at the same time, I have to discipline him. You understand? He wrote me a note last week, slipped it in my little closet. I should have brought it. I didn't think about it. He said, Dad... I'm sorry that I've been so hard. He said, I'm just trying to learn things, and I realize. I realize that you've always loved me. Question. Ed Turley. Bill, it seems that uh, what my discipline of my children looks like when they're in their 30s and 40s is different than when they're in their teens. And it's my belief that I'm still responsible for disciplining my children, even though they're there in their 30s and 40s, or when they get there. I think, and there's a question here, could you address your thoughts in that regard as to, well, final point is, it's, it's my presumption that the only authority I have over my children at the ages of 16 on is the authority they give me. By consent. So, given that those three premises are what I think, and I may be wrong in thinking that, I wonder if you could speak to A, whether or not you agree, B, how we make that transition and what it looks like. What are discipline, what are our boundaries when they're 12 and 15? What do the boundaries look like when they're off to school and out of the house? And what does it look like when they're in their 20s and 30s? Is there a difference? This, I believe, never changes. You understand? I believe that that never changes. 
But I think as our children get older and they are taking their own lumps and they become fathers, that this also never changes. We love, lead, train, and discipline our children. But the discipline takes more of the training and example feature. Remember, it's a student. Make studious. Help that child question, why is this happening? And they need, in this harsh world, which is so performance-oriented, and my sons know when they have let me down. I, it's very clear to me, they, they know that. And as they get older, and the consequences of their behavior are less shielded by us, right? My 20-year-old uh, up at college just lost his driver's license for one year for something I told him not to do. He went off, he did it, and they just took his license away for one year. I can't protect him from that. There's nothing I can do to restore his license. There's also no, no need for me to tell him, I told you so. I am not going to help him get around it. I am not going to interfere with that process. He is without a car. I am going to love him. I'm going to tell him that God will never let him down, that God will always be there for him. I'm going to tell him that I'm going to always be there for you, but I am, I am not your safety net now. That God is telling you to trust in me now. And I, I have determined that because of my personality, not to lecture them, but to put myself in a position where they will come to me and ask, Dad, what do you think I should do? And just pray, and I pray, if not me, God, bring someone into the lives of my children who can give them godly counsel. I don't have a stake in it, whether it's me. If it is me, fine. If it's not me, fine. Yes, sir. Uh, Bill, as, as I entered into a relationship with my spiritual fathers, it occurs to me that they were pursuing the same agenda and the difference with an adult one-on-one -on -one was that the discipline was not the discipline of a parent to a child, but that of a believer within the body of Christ. And it was the discipline of the body of Christ. And I wonder if, it, in your opinion, that's what happens as our children get older. Yeah. The, the relationship is special and will always be, but the discipline goes from them reporting to God through us to reporting to God directly. And that's where the discipline comes. Right. I, I treat it as just the same as bear one another's burdens, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, and uh, over Christmas, I just had the happiest time. My, my son, they, they've had a couple of friends since they were three years old. They've all, the four of them have always been best buddies. And they sat me down one day and they said, uh, and David always, it probably said, Mr. Karen, can we ask you a question? Can we ask you a question? I said, well, sure, David, what is it? He said, can we talk with you about sex? I said, absolutely. I'd love to talk with you about sex. 
absolutely, let's talk about it. And we spent the next two hours talking about the importance of chastity, having a godly wife. It gave me the opportunity to tell my sons again, and I never failed to tell them, every Saturday for the past 16 years at least, I have prayed for my son's wives and I prayed for my daughter's husband before she was even born. Every Saturday I pray that God would choose their mate, that it would be a godly mate, and, and that's what I did this morning in my quiet time. And it gave me the opportunity to tell them, you know, God wants you to have a woman who loves him. And David, Jonathan, David, I have been praying for you, just like I've been praying for Ryan and Quentin for at least 15 years every Saturday, that you would have the wisdom to seek a godly woman, and here's why. So, yes. Yes, yes, sir. And then, what's your name? Rick. Rick. It just uh, occurs to me to affirm the fact that it's uh, really probably rewarding to have that conversation with your children before it's a little late and they're already involved in things they shouldn't be involved in before marriage. When they came to you, wasn't, wasn't it exciting to say, yes, I want to talk to you about sex when you knew that they didn't know more than you knew? <laughs> a amen? Well, I, I tell you, we, we started a little tradition. We, I read this in a book, and when they turned 13, I'd take each one off on a trip, just father-son trip, and buy just alone for four days. And uh, we picked something that's really fun to do. With Ryan, we went skiing in Taos, New Mexico, and we just talked. Father-son, we talked about sex, we talked about drugs. I said, son, ask me anything, and I'll give you an honest answer before God. And I let him know it. He wanted to know about my screw-ups, what I was afraid of. Why in the world do you ask those questions? But, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they thought that when I told Ryan we're going to go off, they just thought that it was going to be one of these, I was going to come down on Ryan and I was isolating him for the purpose of the attack, you know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. And, and uh, when, when, when they came back, Ryan and Quentin are just like that. When Quentin just hustled him off into the room because he really wanted to know, did he shoot you? Did he stab you? What happened? <laughs> and uh, Ryan said, you know, well, we just had a great time. And then after that, Quentin kept saying, well, Dad, what are we going to do when I turn 13? You know, and I said, whatever you want. You plan it. You tell me what you want to do, and we'll do it. And now Skylar knows that when she, what are we going to do? She says, sweetheart, we'll, we'll figure that out. You tell me what you want to do. And we talked to, I asked him, do you really, can you really make a commitment to God? Can you really make a commitment to be chaste before God? Um, and, and anyway. Is uh, 13 uh, maybe even not uh, soon enough, maybe, in some cases? I picked 13. There's no magic age. Uh, Rick? Um, um, right there on the, if you want to pull down your, the white sheet, the question I had was on uh, our moral failures. Does that also go for our wives as well? Does what also it, go? It, you, you said there, uh, our, moral, our moral failures are often the means of God's use. Uh, that also go for our wives as well? Their, fa their failures? Their moral failures. Yes, that's right. 
absolutely, except with this. It is not my role to discuss my wife's moral failures with my children. You understand? That's her thing. That's, that's her. I don't touch that. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, and, and they, they asked me, uh, well, did, did, you and mom, did you and mom have sex before marriage? And I said, yes, son, I, I, was, I, was, I was not a Christian. I, I, what I did was wrong. I have asked God, uh, your mother and I, individually and together, we have gone before God to ask him to forgive us for that. So yeah, we, we did it, and I'm not proud of it. But yeah, I, I let Dana deal with her own moral failure, because <laughs> I don't want her to deal with mine. And so <laughs> Thank you.